Welcome to the Tinnitus Talk podcast. I'm here with Dr. Thanos Tsunopoulos. Welcome, Thanos. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So you may or may not know this, but ever since we started this podcast, now uh, over a year ago, we've gotten many, many requests to to have you on. So it seems like uh, you have a lot of fans out there. Happy to hear that, and hopefully our discussions will be helpful to them. And as I said, I'm I'm happy to be here. So we live in strange times, obviously. So I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't start by asking you, how are you coping under the current circumstances, and how is your work affected? Thanks for asking. Uh, things are fine overall. We're fine. My family and my community there. Everybody seems to be doing to be doing fine. Of course, as you know, we're all uh, experiencing unprecedented times, and we all have uh, we all have to adjust. And uh, regarding our uh, my work, the lab has been uh, basically under partial lockdown. Explain what that is for the last three four weeks, uh, because we have um, animals obviously in the lab. We're allowed to have an essential to have essential personnel, so we can go there and take care of the animals, mice in my case, for the most part. And then uh, a few experiments that had started uh, before the lockdown were able to complete them or continue them because that would be out to the detriment of uh, of the mice. However, we cannot do we cannot start any new experiments, and we basically operate under these uh, essential personnel. So yeah. No really new stuff going on right now, but as I said, we will understand that and we're trying to do the best for ourselves and for our community. How are things there? Are things, how is everybody there? Yeah, so I'm, I'm recording from Finland. Uh, things are, I guess, not as bad as in some places in the world. Uh, I know in the US, in some places like New York City, it's pretty bad. So I guess we're re- relatively okay here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Good to hear. So you mentioned so, uh, the delays in the lab work. Are, are you worried about, you know, not just your own work, but in general, um, delays in clinical research? Again, right? Uh, sometimes priorities changing depending on uh, what life is bringing us. So sure, my work and other people's work is going to fall behind a little bit. So, but I think it's, uh, it seems that it's necessary what we'll be doing right now in order to, to avoid worse things uh, from happening. So although I cannot speak for others, it seems that uh, overall, at least so far, the measure seems well justified and nothing horrible to my knowledge has happened because of the stoppage of, uh, of this research. And as I said, essential research is uh, still going on. However, given uh, that things are going slightly better, or at least they don't get as bad, they don't evolve as bad as they were as a few days ago, there's been talk about uh, repopulating the lab, you know, gradually and uh, getting back to some sort of work. But again, the specifics and how these things are going to happen, it's unclear yet, given the uncertainty of, uh, of what we're going through. Yeah, let's hope so. All right, let's talk a little bit about your work. Um... You're the director of the Pittsburgh Hearing Research Center. Can you tell us a bit 
about what it is you do and how it relates to tinnitus? Yes, maybe I'll start a little bit. Can I start a little bit earlier? How <laughs> my a brief, sure. yeah, a, a yeah, brief yeah. CV, if you will. So, basically, born and raised in Athens, Greece. Then I did biology. I studied biology at college in Athens, Greece. General biology at the time. Then the last couple of years, I focused more on molecular biology. And then through a Fulbright uh, fellowship, I came to the United States to, to do my PhD. And I went to Portland, Oregon, where I studied uh, biophysics of potassium channels. These are these membrane proteins that allow potassium to go in and out, and they're very important for the firing the activity of neurons. And we're trying to understand how these channels open and close and how they allow how they, they perform their function. Then I did that under the supervision of John Edelman. He was my mentor. And after that, I went to UCSF. I went to San Francisco, where, uh, I, where I worked with the, I did my postdoc with uh, Robert Malenka. At the time, Rob Malenka was running his lab with Roger Nichol too. And there, I studied their synapses, the, how neurons communicate with each other and how these connections can change in response to transient events that can lead ultimately to memory and learning. Try to understand what was the basis of the cellular and molecular basis of memory and learning. Then after that, I went back to Portland, Oregon, and this is where I started my work with, uh, with the auditory system. And I did a postdoc there with uh, uh, Larry Trussell, who was my second postdoctoral mentor. And this is where I started applying what I knew, if you will, to more auditory circuits. And I've been working on, the, on auditory circuits ever since. Then after completing my postdoc with Larry Trussell, I went to, I started my own lab initially in Chicago for a couple of years, Chicago Medical School. But then soon I moved here at the University of Pittsburgh, where I have been for, uh, for 11 years. And I'm studying the normal and no, I'm studying cellular and molecular mechanisms that underline normal and pathological auditory processing, basically how we hear, what is the mechanism of hearing, and how, when there are hearing disorders, what we can do when things go wrong. And as I told you, I've been doing that for the last 10, 11 years here. And I'm a professor, I'm an adult professor of auditory physiology in the Department of Otolaryngology. In the last couple of years, we created the Pittsburgh Hearing Research Center, which addresses, again, again issues of uh, normal and pathological hearing. And this is a combination of investigators human, with human-related research, animal-model-related research, clinicians. And again, the goal is to understand the underpinnings of hearing and hearing disorders and uh, how we can help. That's briefly my history in terms of uh, research. All right. And what's, what sort of triggered your interest in the auditory system. Was there something specific that got you interested? I guess how how I now that I'm replaying it, what happened after I, I finished when I did uh, my my first postdoc, right? I was working in the hippocampus, this is where the part of the brain where memories created and memories formed. And um, then after finishing this postdoc, I wanted to go to more of a sensory system where we know what sort of the information that comes to that part of the brain, we know what it's good for. 
a little bit more peripheral, if you will, and we know what, what the inputs are coming for more clearly. And then uh, I, I, I got excited about the auditory system because at the time, the very first parts of the auditory system, the periphery of the auditory system was thought to be non-plastic, if you will, meaning non-modifiable. But I think some of the structures there kind of resemble more central structures that are modifiable and so plastic. So I wanted to study the plasticity mechanism, if you will, of the, of the auditory system, which was unknown at the time. So that's, that was the initial uh, motivation to go to the sensory system and most importantly to, to the auditory system. All right. And how did tinnitus factor in it? At what point did that come onto your radar, so to speak? How come to the radar? Remember, I told you that um, I started studying the mechanism of uh, memory and learning, right? Basically, how transient experiences can link to long-lasting perceptions, such as, you know, long-lasting changes, if you will, such as memory and learning, right? And uh, as I was studying the, the auditory system and I was looking at uh, similar mechanisms, if you will, of, uh, that happened in the auditory system. At the time, tinnitus was, uh, you know, it's a phantom percept, right? It's a, the sound that we, we constantly hear. And uh, basically, I got interested to understand how this perception is being formed by an initial, this phantom perception is being formed by an initial event or maybe series of events. And yeah, I, I got interested trying to understand how the plas- how experience and the plasticity of the brain lead to the develop lead to the establishment of a of a perception such as tinnitus. Right. It's uh, yeah. I, I asked that question because not a lot of academics with sort of neurological background decide to make tinnitus one of their research topics. So it's always mm-hmm. interesting to hear how that interest. Uh, came about and you know as with any sort of career choice it can be you know completely by chance or it can be a deliberate choice uh, usually a combination of both right but yes <laughs> in, in my case there were, you know also my background shaped me you know i told you i did uh, potassium channels and then synaptic plasticity and then auditory system if you put all these things together you can sort of predict that something like tinnitus could be a a subject of study. Right. And so at this point, would you call yourself a tinnitus researcher? As in, do you have a specific interest in tinnitus, or is it more part of this broader endeavor to learn about uh, neural activity in the auditory pathway? Uh, hard to put labels, but let, let me, how do I identify myself? Okay, I'm a neuroscientist to start with, right? I'm trying to understand how the brain works. But I have a strong commitment uh, to tinnitus research because really I've been doing tinnitus research for the last 10, 12 years. And actually it's a, it's, a, it's a project that has been going on during this whole time. And it's kind of nice and very satisfying to see how to go from a, mecha- from a completely unknown mechanism to identifying some mechanism, to creating some molecules that might help correct this mechanism and now going to hopefully go into clinical trials soon. So I'm a neuroscientist, but I'm extremely committed and excited to continue this research on tinnitus. And so you can call me a tinnitus researcher too. So all good. <laughs> Great. That, that's 
that's good to hear. Uh, do you have any any personal experience with tinnitus or anyone you know? Oh, I have tinnitus. However, I didn't have it when I started working on tinnitus. Was I ahead of my time? I don't know. But anyway, the, I, started, I started realizing that I have tinnitus five years ago. But as I told you, I started working on tinnitus more than 10 years ago. But I do have tinnitus. It's, it's 24-7. I have a high-frequency tone. I have some hearing loss, too. And luckily enough, I'm not bothered by it. I'm not, very, I'm not much bothered by it. And, you know, I can concentrate. I can focus. I can keep going on with my daily activities. But there are times that it's... Uh, louder than almost your voice you know it just yeah it's oh, wow. uh, i do have it yeah that's pretty loud uh but glad to hear that you're not or most of the time at least not bothered by it correct correct yeah but it, it's interesting that you got it after you started researching tinnitus because i have i've spoken to a lot of tinnitus researchers at, at conferences and such and many of them have told me this, that they developed tinnitus after they started researching it. So I don't know. You know it's, fu <laughs> it's funny when you said it, right? Because when I first started experiencing tinnitus, I said, oh, come on, I'm, I'm telling myself, I'm thinking about tinnitus. I do all these papers about tinnitus. I work on tinnitus. I talk with my students all day about tinnitus. Maybe I convinced myself I have it. No, no, I, I have it. I remember. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then... And then I went and did an audiogram, you know, and see, you know, and then there was some hearing loss. So, you know, the, the pattern was, uh, was consistent with, um, with the percept. So, yeah, 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 exactly. All right. So let's dive a bit more into the research. So, and, and talk a bit about tinnitus. Maybe start a bit about talking about tinnitus models, and then we go into the, into mm -hmm. the drug, yeah, the drug that you're developing. So. Can you start by just explaining for our listeners, what is your, do you have a theory or model of how tinnitus is, is generated? Yes, happy, happy to do that. Yeah, I, I definitely have a, a theory and a model as to how tinnitus is, is happening. So tinnitus is a phantom percept, right? So first I would like to talk about a little bit about phantom percept, meaning a percept that is not based on an external stimulus, right? That's, that's what I mean by phantom percept. So if we really think about it, thinking and mindfulness, these are all forms of phantom perception, right? Or we can at least say that mindfulness is not possible without imagination, right? We have to imagine what we're thinking. So even Aristotle himself, 2,500 years ago, in his book on the soul, he said that the soul cannot produce thoughts without relying on phantom constructs. So phantom constructs are at the core of cognition and thought and mindfulness. So that's about, so it's, phantom constructs are not something bad, actually it's something very good. But now the question is, why do we need to have phantom, phantom percepts, right? This phantom construct. So here's why I think we need, so our brain, they, they, they're doing this amazing task, right? What I think, what I believe that our brains do, they perform an online prediction of reality. And I will explain this a little bit more. And, th and this online prediction has to, have, has to match the speed of reality. 
it cannot stay behind or faster. So it has to match reality dynamically. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit better. For example, let's say we're on the street, right? A car is approaching us. And, you know, we have to, if the brain is really what it's doing is this prediction and, and it's matching the reality dynamically, if it comes too close to us, we have to jump the right time to avoid the bad event. Because if we don't do it the right time, you know, we're not going to exist for much longer. On the other hand, if we jump before the car comes, we'll keep jumping without any reason, right? So I think it's this much of reality that the brain is constantly doing. But then, okay, how does that link to phantom perception? I guess what I'm trying to say is that the brain never stops, right? It's not that there is a, it's not that there is complete silence and then a sound comes and the brain understands the sound. It's not the brain in order to perform this task it has to rely on this internally generated, internally generated representations of basic aspects of the outside world. So evolution has built these things into our brain to help the brain predict and match reality dynamically and with the right timing. So I suggest that this, this internally there are internal representations of the sound perception, such as stones and hissing and all these other tinnitus percepts that during tinnitus are kind of released to our consciousness because some sort of desynchronization occurs, right? This, this matching of inside and outside state is not happening, right? So how does this desynchronization occur then? I think what happens is that the internal state or the mind, these internal generated percepts, man function in concert with the sensory organs. I think what needs to happen first, or what usually happens first, is that the sensory organs go bad. Either we, go, we, we lose vision or audition or we get older. And then the brain, because these this sensory organs, right, that basically inform the brain about the external state and they form the internal state of the mind, although the mind, as I told you, has its own intrinsic activity. So I don't know, maybe it was too long of what I think about the brain, but I think what is going on is that the brain never stops. The brain keeps hearing, keeps seeing things without even external stimulus. And frankly, that's thought, that's, that's how we live, right? Now, this the brain has to match the external with the internal so, and has to do that fast and accurately. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And I think the reason, especially in teenagers, why it doesn't happen is that what comes to the brain from our organs stops being the right information. As I said, we get uh, hearing loss or uh, vision loss or other things, hearing loss in teenagers, and that can lead to misrepresentations in the brain. So that's, that's my overall hypothesis, if you will, and understanding of how the brain works and how tinnitus. Mm -hmm. so, but of course, we know that not everyone with hearing loss develops tinnitus. So do you know what, what is different about the brain of someone with tinnitus in that regard? Correct. You know, you know there, is, there has to be a, a damage. And again, what I'm saying, let me rephrase something. Like, this is my hypothesis, right? And Fortunately or unfortunately, there is not a unifying hypothesis yet about tinnitus, right? And that's okay. That's why we do 
research and that's what keeps us busy and happy and uh, <laughs> and and I'm I'm okay with this uncertainty so there is the exter- there is a um, hearing loss if you will but then sometimes the brain might be able to co- compensate okay about the hearing loss and still and still create this synchrony as I told you between the internal and the external world, right? And then we don't have these aberrant, these phantom sounds when we don't want them. So I think it's not only then auditory networks that participate in the development of tinnitus, if you will, there is also non-auditory networks that are getting involved that then determine at the end who is going to get bothered and who is not, who is going to experience it to what extent and who is not. But I think at least in my models, and what, what I decided to study is that especially in the animal models, I started simulate, I, I, we started simulating noise-induced hearing loss, right? Or some noise-induced uh, trauma, if you will, to mice, and then see how their brains uh, change with that. Hey there. I hope you're enjoying this podcast so far. I'd like to just take a minute and ask you to reflect on what brings you here. I assume it's because, like me, you have tinnitus. And if you do, I hope it doesn't bother you too much and that you're able to, say, listen to a podcast episode without feeling constantly aggravated or distracted by your tinnitus. But even if you are able to ignore it, remember that there are millions of people out there who feel completely debilitated by their tinnitus. And that's got to change. By supporting the Tinnitus Talk podcast, which you can do through Patreon for as little as $2 a month, you wouldn't just be supporting the podcast itself, but all the other work we do to help people with tinnitus, such as running the Tinnitus Talk support forum, collecting data for research, and working directly with researchers to help push for a cure. We hope you'll consider it. Either way, we appreciate you listening. And now let's get back to the interview. All right. And I, I know your research also focuses a lot on the molecular level uh, and specifically mm-hmm. these um, potassium channels and, and how they may change, uh, I think, nerve activity. I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but can you explain how that factors into the whole model of how tinnitus is generated? Right. So... When I started uh, working on tinnitus, it's, um, it was known that um, there are these neurons in the, the very first stop of the auditory nerve. You know, once, a, you, okay, there is the ear, right? There is a sound stimulus in the form of pressure. It enters the ear, then the hair cells get activated from the sound pressure. Then this pressure is converted to an electrical signal, right? And it goes to our brain. And then the brain does its thing, and I'm going to get into that. So the very first stop of the, audit- of the, of, of the auditory nerve to the brain is this area called cochlear nucleus, right? It's a, the first part of the central auditory nervous system. And uh, what was known work before me, because that was by Don Caspari and uh, also by uh, Tom Brozowski and Kaltebach, they showed that... Uh, these neurons there in the dorsal cochlear nucleus, they call fusiform neurons. They fire after noise exposure and after some damage or tinnitus, and or tinnitus, they fire, you know, they, they have activity 
when there is not supposed to have activity. They have enhanced spontaneous activity, right? So then that early on was sort of start thinking, okay, you know, maybe this aberrant central activity, maybe this is what triggers tinnitus, right? And then there was also some very important work to me and to the world, I think, that when people, are, uh, I think there was the Brozowski group that did that, and Carl Bauer and uh, Don Caspar, I think that what they did, when they ablated the, the dorsal cochlear nucleus, after tinnitus was established in rats, and tinnitus was established for three months, right? then tinnitus was still there. However, when they ablated the structure, right, during the noise exposure, they could not induce tinnitus, suggesting this, that this part of the brain, the cochlear nucleus, is important for the triggering of tinnitus, right? So it is important for the triggering, and it leads to this act activity, this aberrant activity of neurons, right? These neurons fire. So that's what I knew. So then what I really simply try to understand is... Uh, how come these neurons fire more, right? Why are these neurons more active at a molecular level, right? I try to understand why they fire action potentials, why they, they're talking, if you will, despite more after noise exposure. So that's what started the studies. That, that's what I try to understand. Irrelevant if that would solve tinnitus or not, right? Just, just this very basic phenomenon of this hyperactivity of this neuron. And... Uh, so then, then what we did, we're able to record from brain slices. Basically, we can cut very thin slices of the brain, of this area of the brain, and we can look at this neuron in, these neurons in isolation. In isolation, we can, record from this, we can record the electrical activity of these neurons, right? So we're able in vitro, in this system that I just told you, and these slices, by the way, these brain slices, if you put them in the right solution, or whatever, they can stay alive, you know, for several hours, right? So you can look at this activity while you record from this neuron. So, and we were able in this, pre in this preparation, we call it in vitro preparation, right? Because obviously there's not a live animal. We're able to reproduce this basic effect that the mice that were noise exposed and that had behavioral evidence of tinnitus, they, they had this hyperactivity. And then we wanted to see how is it generated and uh, a seminal result that we had is that, um, you know, neurons, the way neurons fire, there's two ways, two major ways that neurons will fire. It's because some other neurons will tell you to do it. There is another neuron next to you and say, you know, it sends a signal and said, go ahead and fire, right? These are the synapses, right? And the brain is, the brain is, the activity of the brain is, is formed by excitatory and inhibitory forces. There are neurons that tell you fire more, there are neurons that tell you, neurons that tell you fire less, right? And it's this balance of these excitatory and inhibitory actions that determine the firing of the neuron. So that's one way, the synapses. The other way is that intrinsic activities. In, by intrinsic activities, I mean these neurons, they have these channels, like potassium channels, like sodium channels, like calcium channels, that on their own, these channels can generate activity on these neurons, right, without any input. And what we initially found is that these neurons are spontaneously active, and even if you remove the connections from other neurons, you can still see this activity, which was also increased after tinnitus. So we, early on, we started focusing what's called intrinsic properties, right? It means that we're looking for some channel. One, parent, one small comment here, and I'll make a stop in case you have questions for the next part. But that doesn't mean that the synapses don't play a role in this activity, but 
because we found that these neurons are so robustly driven by their intrinsic properties, we decided to focus on the intrinsic properties. Okay, let's take a break on this. And <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, I, I think I'm following. Um, right. That, that's so, good. so what? Um, <laughs> so what do you think is then happening in those potassium ion channels that could cause this overactivity in the nerves? Right. Right. So, okay. When it comes to intrinsic properties like channels, there are again brakes and accelerators in the neuron. Right. Throughout the sodium channels. So that the sodium channels are the accelerators, right? They allow for sodium ions to depolarize, to make the memory potential more positive, and then that leads to the firing of the neuron, right? The activity of the neuron. Right as the, right as the, the neuron gets more positive and starts firing, then the potassium channels start get activated, and then they, they take potassium outside of the, from the inside of the cell to the outside, and then they stop, if they will, they hyperpolarize, they quiet down. This is the break of activity. Potassium channel is the break of activity. So simply thinking what we said, okay, either we have an added accelerator or we have the removal of a break, okay? That's, why, that's how a car would go faster, right? Make the long story short, and I had a very talented uh, graduate student, her name is Shuang Li, who went through a lot of, biophysical and electrophysiological tricks. And to make the long story for you, here in a couple of minutes, we found out that a potassium channel, one of the brakes was just not working well, right? Somehow the, these channels were not, were not operating optimally, which means that a break that the neuron had was not existing anymore. Okay, these channels don't work and they don't allow for potassium to come out, and that's why there is no dark break, and that's why the cells fire were not supposed to fire. But then the next question was, okay, it is a potassium channel. These channels are called KCNQ channels or KV7 channels. That's less important. But what is important is, how do these channels stop working right? What is the problem, right? Why don't they not work? Again, there are two major ways that a channel can stop working. One is that, um, you know, these channels, they have to, they're synthesized inside the cell and they have to go to the membrane of the neuron to, to allow for this in and out of ions that I told you. So it could be that the channels never make it to the membrane, right? They're just not, make, they're not formed. Somehow after noise trauma and tinnitus, they're ruined for whatever reason. The other uh, alternative is that the channels are there, but they're not functioning properly. And one major function of channels, these channels are voltage-gated. It means that depending on the voltage of the membrane, they open or close. And think of the voltage as a pressure, think of the voltage as, a, as the force that you have to apply to open something, right? Let's say the door, that's a heavy door, you have to apply more effort, right? It's a lighter door, less effort. So this voltage dependence opens and closes the channels. So what we found is that the channels are on the membrane, if you really apply a lot of force in them, you can open them to the same extent as in normal channels, but somehow the force that you have to apply is larger in order to keep them well functioning. So that was good news, you know. The reason that was good news because it means that if we want to do something about it and help these channels open, nature was kind of generous to us and it puts them there. It just, we just have to open them. 
So how did you open it, Shana? Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So right. So the 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 potassium ion channels are they kind of normally they kind of soothe or calm the nerve activity, if you will. And and your theory is that um, if the channels are somehow compromised and they don't flow properly, maybe then. Mm-hmm then they, they don't perform that soothing function. And then you get the overactivity of nerves in the auditory pathway that cause tinnitus. Is that a sort of correct summary? Excellent. You said it very well. I don't know. If, <laughs> okay. The only thing I would add at this point as the, as the story evolves, we don't know if it causes tinnitus yet, but we can say that exactly what you said, beautiful, that this can cause aberrant activity of these neurons. These neurons are active when they're not supposed to be active. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and so, right, and then we 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 assume that that aberrant activity is what what causes the tinnitus signal. But is it so? In in order to prove that, we have to do something more causal, right? Can can we change that? Can can we can we open these channels now to these damaged mice, to these uh, noise exposed mice, and then can we change the activity of the channel? But also, can we change the perception? Can we prevent them from having tinnitus? All right. So that that to me. To me, that's, that's the next important step. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. The good thing is that uh, the structure of these channels, you know, I mean, the three-dimensional structure of these channels and how these channels open and close has been known by other researchers, right? These channels are well characterized. So we know, we know if you will, the, how these channels look like. So then after I had these findings, before before started collaborating with the chemist to make a, a new drug, there was this drug out there. It's called this drug is called retigabin. Okay, now this was FDA approved. Uh, it's still FDA approved. It's just not out anymore because it's not beneficial to the market. So this uh, this drug was given to to people that have uh, had epilepsy and it was working. But what does this drug do? This drug does exactly the opposite of what tinnitus did to the channels. I will explain that. This drug is a channel opener. It opens the channels, this KCNQ channels, right? So how does it do it? Basically, as I told you, the channels go through this open and closed state. Imagine that you apply a small molecule at a part of the channel that will keep it open, right? Imagine that you put a, an obstacle in the door now, and this doesn't close. You keep the, the door open. So we, we, we figured that, okay, let's try this. Um, this drag right in mice and see do we do we correct the biophysical activity the neurons how the neurons fire and then do we collect the behavior and we did both work that's why we're talking now and then when we gave this mice tinnitus we're able to correct these channels and open them and also we're able to get with behavioral evidence of things we're able to correct tinnitus in these mice right so however there is a problem with this drug, right? And uh, it's not in the market anymore. First problem is that the channels, the channels that I told you, these KC and Q channels, or KV7 channels, there is five, five types of these channels, KV, KC and Q1 to KC and Q5, okay? The channels that were identified by us that they play a role in tinnitus are the channels KC and Q2 and 3, all right? But this drug, the retigabin drug, opens two, three, four, and five. So already there was a lack of specificity there. But then also retigabin was 
started having these effects, it, it, uh, people that were taking the trigabin for years, so again, it was working for epilepsy, they started developing this blue coloration to their skin and to the retina due to some degradation products of uh, retigabin and also to the lack of specificity of retigabin. So the bottom line is, if we want to move forward and create a drug that will hopefully help with uh, individuals with tinnitus, we need to create a more specific, a more potent, and a less toxic drug. And that's what you're that's what you're trying to do now. You're you're redeveloping this existing drug to be more uh, to target the problem more specifically and to avoid negative uh, side effects. Correct. So to do that, because you know science is a collaborative affair, and I, by no means I'm a chemist. In order to do that, we have to have a chemist, right? You need you need to have somebody that knows the channel well, knows the small molecules well, and design a small molecule now that's very specific and very potent. I was very lucky and I'm grateful that I met uh, Peter Whiff. Peter Whiff is a chemist here at, uh, at Pittsburgh, right? At the University of Pittsburgh. And he, he, he's a medicinal chemist, not just a chemist. So we started collaborating on this, right? And with that goal, exactly what you said, right? How can we make now a more specific and a more potent drug? And and Peter is a magician when it comes to chemistry, and you know he created these uh, several new molecules that were more potent and more specific. They were just binding to this casing to three channels. Number one, they don't bind to four and five. They bind with very high affinity, with very high specificity, and also they're much more stable, and they don't have the degradation products that lead to these uh, toxic effects that uh, retigabin has, right? So now we're in that state and you know, we're working towards refining and uh, identifying the lead molecule, right? The molecule that we're going to take to the clinical trials. And I'm happy to report that we've made a lot of progress in the preclinical development. We have the lead molecule and we have to go through all these regulatory paths, which are many of them, and I'm learning them as we're going through. To, to get to be able to to give it to humans. The good thing is that um, except for Peter with my department, the uh, Department of Laryngology and uh, Jonah Johnson, the chair, and also there is the INEAR Foundation, which supports our department. And also there's a UPMC, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and also UPMC Enterprises that have endorsed, they've been helping us all along with that. And now, because you know, the knowledge that you need for that stage, as I told you, I'm basically a neuroscientist, right? It takes a lot of knowledge of the market, of regulatory steps to, to reach a drug to the market. So I'm very fortunate that uh, we've been endorsed by UPMC Enterprise and people that know these, these aspects of the game, if you will, in order to, to move a drug to the market. And uh, things are advancing slowly, but steadily and uh, with a high level of commitment. That's very great to hear. And, and I want to hear more about plans for market launch and the next phases of, of clinical trial. But, but maybe first, um, do you have a sense of whether this drug would help anyone with tinnitus or, or is it focused on specific types of tinnitus? And I guess uh, implicit in that question is also whether you believe in this concept of subtyping of tinnitus. I do believe that there are subtypes of tinnitus. 
I think that uh, however we do not know what these subtypes are, right? That's uh, we, we need to we know that there are, and that, you know, and also tinnitus, as we discussed earlier, right? That um, it's a phantom percept, right? It's a very it's very tightly bound to subjectivity, right? <laughs> so okay, yes, I do believe there are categories of tinnitus. Of course, we can easily say that there is a noise-induced tinnitus or the drug-induced tinnitus. There are different ways to induce, to get tinnitus. There is age-dependent tinnitus, which maybe they convert somewhere, if you will, and that could be peripheral uh, damage. I think that our drug would work in cases where there is a hyperactivity of the, of the central nervous system, if you will. And also what I believe about our drug and I cannot predict yet which category is going to work, but we're working on that, and I'll, I'll talk to you about that later. But the bottom line thing, I think that tinnitus is a plasticity disorder in my mind. There is a peripheral damage or some peripheral change, if you will, and that leads to central reorganization to compensate. Sometimes it compensates, sometimes it doesn't. But I think plasticity, is the, although it's the cause of the disorder, I think plasticity is also the cure of the disorder. And what I'm trying to say is that if we tweak the system now by putting a drug that quiet neurons, right? Our drug would quiet these neurons, right? You give it a chance for the system to recalibrate. You give it a chance to reach another state that it might not be bothersome or it might not include this phantom perception. The bottom line is I think we, we need to make sure that this drug is safe to be given to people to start the clinical trials. And then as clinical trials evolve, we have to become more mindful and hopefully with more knowledge as to what are the best tinnitus subcategories, you will, that, will, that, that our drug will be most effective, if, if any. Yeah. Only one more thing. The hope is that for epileptic, for people with epilepsy, for individuals who had epilepsy, right, this drug worked for sure, right? There is no doubt. I mean, we saw that. Of course, it had all these... Uh, side effects, which we're trying to correct. So at least part of tinnitus has a resemblance to epilepsy, right? There is an aberrant activity somewhere in the auditory brain or even in the auditory brain. And I think that will be corrected. Hopefully that correction will help many people from uh, not having tinnitus or not having at least bothersome tinnitus. We'll see. Do you think it could also have potential uh, benefits for hyperacusis? It could. It could, although that's another, uh, <laughs> another topic, you know, saying that <laughs> there is... Uh... But yeah, in theory, yes, because if, if, if hyperacusia is also part of uh, increased activity, increased gain, if you will, of the response, it, 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 it might help there too. Yeah, yeah, it it would seem to make intuitive sense, but uh, I guess we won't know for sure until you start um, testing on the trials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk a bit more about the testing and the clinical trials. So what what stage of the development are you exactly right now? We are on the refinement of the lead candidate, and uh, you know we do all this uh, in vivo, in vitro uh, toxicology tests of several compounds that we have, including RL81, which is more known because a lot of it has been published, to figure out uh, what is the best lead candidate to move, it to, to move it to the clinic. Now, as I told you, these are a lot of this is toxicology, pharmacokinetics, 
And also we have to de-risk, if you will, the known risk of retigabin, right? So there is extra steps because we know, which is good and bad, the good things that we know what we're dealing with, we know what the toxicities are, the blue color and the melanin binding and the, the skin discoloration. The bad part or the challenging part, or I would say the, the, the part with the opportunity is that we have a chance to correct, to correct these toxic effects, right? And we have a chance to, yeah, as I said, to correct. So, so that's why the preclinical development of this compound has extra steps, because we know that we're dealing with extra toxicity, which is known. But it is moving forward. It is moving forward. And uh, so far, so good. You know, there is not, there is always go, no go test. We have not hit a no go test with uh, what we think is our lead compound for now. All right. So you spent, um, yeah, extra care or time with the animal testing, preclinical testing. Uh, someone, one of our listeners actually asked an interesting question that made me curious. Have you conducted any tests that failed, quote unquote, and and what did you learn from this? During this whole uh, narrative that I gave you, how we reached to what is a potassium channel, how does it do? I mean, ninety percent of the experiments that we do are failures, right? I mean, really. So I didn't talk to you about all the failures because we have to be talking. Okay, not for ten years, but at least for a couple of years, you know. <laughs> so yeah, please, please. <laughs> Please tell this Lisa. I hope he's listening. Here she's listening. Science is um, full of failures and ability to deal with failure and learn and move forward. So everything that I know and I learn is because of this failure, frankly. Oh, well, that's, (laughs) I mean, that's probably an important message, I think, for the listeners as well, you know, because people are always wondering, why does it take so long, you know, uh, to develop new treatments? But they. They probably don't realize all the trials and tribulations that come with it. I mean, you know, failures are a badge of honor, right? I mean, seriously, in science, we're, we're, we're trying to, to figure out the unknown. And it takes a lot of failures <laughs> to start believing that something is right until the next experiment. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it might yeah. tell you that. The, so, but the good thing is that when you see this, in long time, you know what I'm saying? I've been doing that now, as I told you, for 10, 11 years. Progress has occurred. However, at times, really, when I, when I was doing that stuff, I felt forget about it. It's never, now I never felt that, but it, you know what I'm saying? With my students and trying channel after channel and drug after drug and neuron after neuron, it felt that it's never happening because, uh, yeah, 80, 90% of the things that we do are unsuccessful. Because yeah, it's yeah. hard. It's hard to so get to the truth. You have to be very persistent. Yeah. In indeed, indeed. So you you are now at the stage where you want to move from animal testing to human testing. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. All right. And and so one thing we've seen with some previous treatments for tinnitus is that. The animal models didn't always seem to translate very well to human models, and sometimes it led to disappointing results in clinical trials. So how optimistic are you about that? You're right. There are species-specific changes, right? Although a lot of the fundamentals are the same, there are species-specific changes. How, for, 
to give you some examples for both, these potassium channels, KC and Q channels, are very, very, very similar towards identical between us and mice. And, you know, it, it just, they're very highly conserved, right? It's a, it was a successful evolutionary decision that nature made that has been maintained in many species. Now, different, however, now different species are differentially sensitive to sound, right? Some of them can tolerate sound more, some others not. So I will agree with you that there are uh, species-specific differences and you never know what's going to happen once you go to the human. Uh, people are developing uh, primate and non-primate models to get closer, if you will, to us. But I think in our case, this potassium channel, as I told you, is very, very, very homologous <laughs> throughout the species, number one. Number two, humans took this drug or a similar drug and it definitely affected the activity, neuronal activity, right? And it helped them at least with epilepsy. So at least we have these things going for us, right? That definitely this, ch this uh, channel opener will affect the neuronal properties of human neurons. I I'm not doubting that. How that now? is going to translate to tinnitus or not tinnitus, frankly, it remains to be seen. I'm optimistic given all these uh, parallels that, that I described to you, right? And um, I'm optimistic that, to, t to say the least, if it doesn't work for tinnitus, again, I'm committed to that, it might work for epilepsy, right? <laughs> or it might work for, uh, for pain, or it might work for hyperacusia. Okay, so I think I don't want to leave this planet until I make sure that this drug is safe enough to be given to humans, that nothing bad is going to happen to them. And then I think I'm expecting good things out of this. And is it really going to solve tinnitus for everybody? I, I do not know that, but, but I'm optimistic that humans will benefit. That's good to hear. Can you give us a, a timeline for the upcoming phases of clinical trials and even the expected uh, market launch? This is tough, you know, and as many times, I mean, life is a little bit bigger than expectations, definitely bigger than mine. But okay, I understand why people want to know that. I think that in the next year or two, we should be able to de-risk everything <laughs> that we know and uh, take, the, take the drug to clinical trials. So I think in the next year or two, I'm expecting the preclinical development to fully compl be completed and start the clinical trials. After that, frankly, I do not know. There has to be phase one, there has to be phase two, there has to be phase three, but it's all going to depend on multiple factors. But I think for now, I can't say that. that I would like to believe that in the next couple of years, will be giving this uh, drug to normal, to individuals without tinnitus or whatever, to make sure that, that it's safe. Yes, because that's always the first phase of, of human testing is uh, purely, uh, is it safe? Not is it effective, but is it safe, right? Correct, correct. And, you know, we have to, we have to go through all the, these regulatory aspects of FDA to make sure that in all the animal models, because all the preclinical is in animal models, to figure out that really we've exhausted all the possibilities that this drug does not have anything toxic in it. Because again, you know, keep in mind, we're going to, we're going to give it to humans and the last thing you want to do is to harm them, right? 
Yeah, of course. So, so what are actually the biggest factors that determine the speed at which this can happen? For us right now, for me and Peter, because we were both scientists and science kept driving us, right? And of course, we had the support of the university and the Annier Foundation and the UPMC. It was uh, really get the right expertise and get the right, surround ourselves with the, with the right team that will, help, that will help us make the right decision as to how it is to be moved forward. So this has been the source of delay, at least for us, because it was a new thing and we were learning it, right? And uh, I think now we, we, we found a team and I feel confident that the team knows they know what they're doing and they're guiding us through each step. So that was a big step because, again, keep in mind, right, with scientists that figured out a basic mechanism and a molecule and we're trying to move things to the market, it's so many, there are so many steps there, you know, that we had to learn. So that, that was a big delay for us, figuring out uh, the right team and the right thing to do. I, th I think we're over that. All right, yeah. Uh, yeah, as you can imagine, a, a, a lot of people who are suffering badly from tinnitus are very desperate for a cure sooner rather than later. And um, there's a lot of frustration around, you know, the regulation. You have to go through the, all the steps of the, of the FDA. And so a lot of people are asking, isn't it possible to apply for a fast track for this drug? Would, would that be an option? Yeah, I, I do not know much about that. I've heard that. I, I have heard that term, but I cannot speak about. I do not know what that is, and I don't know if that's an option. I I can discuss with my team. Definitely, that has not been on the table yet, and especially now with the COVID nineteen and all that stuff. I don't know how appropriate. You know, what I'm saying how much we can push other things. But bottom line, I don't know the answer. I can ask and learn more and let you know. You know. Yeah, yeah. So it, so it sounds like you you will need some kind of uh, commercial partner or, or who, who can uh, really help bring this drug to market. But I think the team that we have now takes care of that too. You know, they, they, they're doing the, the job and the development for that. So I, we're in good hands. It, it is going to happen. Now, again, it has to pass all this, this go-no-go test, right? And we have to solve this, uh, to de-risk all these risks that uh, Retigabin had. And, that is an unknown, but again, we know it needs to get done, and I'm, I'm optimistic and confident that we're, we're going to figure it out and move forward. All right. So um, when you said, yeah, we, we have sort of everything we need in the team, can you reiterate who are the, actually the different partners? Having what we need, I mean, we have people with experience in the team that have taken drugs to the market, people with experience in the team that know, that talk to the FDA and they can guide us on what needs to get done in order to get FDA approval, start a, you know, to, what's called the IND, Investigation for New Drug Application, INDA. And we have also people uh, that are aware of the market and are looking at opportunities out there because even up to phase one, I think we can go with what we have. But then, you know, when things reach phase two or phase three, we're talking about the tens of millions, right? And it's a different ball game. And then you need, some big partner, but we have people in, in the team that are aware of this, uh, of this circuitry, if you will, of how, how to get things done at, at that level. So that's, that's what I mean by that. And also, most importantly, right, but right now, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a more step-by-step -step type of guy. Like, right now, the important thing is to de-risk the problems of this drug 
so we can file for an ID and start the phase one. And I think we have what it takes. But at the, while we're doing this, there are people also the team looking at the next step. You know what I'm saying? How how we can go then get you know get either more money from virtual capitalists. I don't know how things are going to evolve, but the experts, <laughs> but the experts are following that up and are helping us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's good to hear. But let let's talk a little bit about funding though, because my understanding is that you got a, a grant from the Department of Defense. Is that correct? Well, I'm uh, I've been. This is the third grant I've been funded from the Department of Defense for the last 10, 11 years. I'm completely grateful and indebted to them, right? These are the ones that they first fund me to figure out. Remember the first step that I told you how these neurons are different in brain slices and why they fire more. Then once we figure out is the potassium channel, these are the DOD funded me again to create a molecule that is better than, you know, to create a specific molecule, right? This we started collaborating with uh, Peter Whiff, right, the chemist. So that was another round of funding from DOD. The third round of funding of DOD came a couple of years ago where we said, okay, now we have this drug, this compound, and a, actually a family of compounds that work better. Let's identify the best lead compound and then start the preclinical development, part of the preclinical development. So this grant does not fund the whole preclinical development, but, it's, but then as I told you, there's great support that we get here from the INR Foundation, from the Department of Otolaryngology, but also the UPMC Enterprises. They're helping us further now with the preclinical development, right, to reach it to phase one. So that has been my funding history, if you will. All right, all right. So, so you don't think that funding will in will be an inhibiting factor in going through the clinical trials? Right now, it's not for for reaching the state of uh, you know completing the the preclinical development and going to to the clinical to you know to phase one. It seems that it it doesn't seem to be a factor right now because by this thing that we have, I think we, I think we can address that. That's good to hear, and. Let's talk also a bit about collaboration, broader collaboration within the tinnitus research fields. Uh, are you uh, following what what other tinnitus researchers are doing? Do you go to conferences, etc.? I was telling you, yes, definitely. I'm trying to read all the tinnitus related research, and I'm trying to keep up with the other investigators. I go to to go audit to conferences. The main conference that I go regularly that I hear a lot of things, the ARO meeting, the Association for Research in Otolaryngology, happens every year. I go to that regularly. At times I get invited to other, you know, to different meetings. So yes, to answer your question, yeah, that's a fundamental part of what I'm trying to do, right? Stay, stay updated with other researchers and see how we can coordinate and collaborate. Hmm. What's your general impression of the tinnitus research fields? Is there enough uh, collaboration going on? I, I guess this, this would be a comparative, right? Let, let's see, what should I, com I'm trying to think now. Because this, this question you can answer only by comparing it to some other field, right? Okay, let me think. I think yeah, it's comparable to other fields. You know, it's a new field. I mean, we still, there is not a dominant hypothesis, if you will, or who haven't figured things out yet. Uh, the animal model is tough too. You know, we're talking about subjective uh, perception, which is, even in humans, it's hard to tell what you think and what 
you hear and what you smell or what I hear or what I think or what I smell. So it is a complicated field by definition. It is a new field, but I think, I think uh, everybody's trying to do his or her best. And uh, yeah, I think, so. I think that things are very advanced. I don't know. I don't see anything majorly worse or better than other fields, you know? All right, right. So no major obstacles, but you're saying it's it's just still a very young field and there's lots of things to, to figure out. That's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen that evolve a lot over the past decade, let's say? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it has. I mean, you know, there are... Yes. I'm thinking of work by... Hard work, uh, source work, uh, uh, kill guard work, Rauschecker uh, work. Yeah, I think uh, things are advancing. You know, we all want it to go faster and better and sure. But I think yes, things <laughs> things uh, things are advancing. There are there are problems, but as I said, you know, in in every field, I don't know, I haven't been in any field that. There are not pros and cons, and there are no problems, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So here's a uh, kind of closing question that I uh, ask every tinnitus researcher. What can be done by, what can be done by the patient community to ad- advance the cause of uh, research? The cause of research? Hmm. From the, I think, first, you all have been very active and, you know, I want to continue to stop it. I still, so it seems that there is a, an active and vibrant community and that's, that's great. Yeah, I am talking to you about this and I appreciate this opportunity. What more can be done? You know, I haven't thought about it. I don't know. I think you're right. I mean, it is a relatively new condition, newly recognized condition, right? I mean, we're not talking so much about tinnitus 10, 15 years ago. And I think that keeps getting that keeps getting better and better. I think you've all been very active. Uh, you've been very complimentary to our work, and you, you've been asking good questions. We know that there is a uh, you give us you keep us uh, excited, motivated, and uh, on our feet, you know, to finish what we start. And uh, as I told you, I have tinnitus, and and I want to see this this work completed, right, and hopefully help myself. And others, that's why we fight so hard for this cure, right? And that, that's the bottom, that's the objective part, right? That we all trying so hard. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I want to thank you on behalf of the Tinnitus patient community for all your hard work. And uh, we're rooting for you to be successful. <laughs> and thank you. Thank you very much for the kind work. Thank you very much for being here. And uh, again, I want to emphasize I'm really committed to continue and finish this line of work. And uh, I'm very committed and excited about it. And uh, again, thank you very much.